If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah 5, um, and I should say there's a, uh, a phone number. There'll be a, a short Q&A after the sermon. If you have any questions, you can text the number that's on your uh, slip of paper there, and I will do my best to answer those after, um, after the sermon. I don't know if I said this. I probably should say this. My name is Bryce. Hales. I'm um, one of the pastors here, and uh, our lead pastor, Brad, is on uh, paternity leave for um, a couple months, and uh, it's my privilege to be um, teaching God's Word as we are working through the book of Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah chapter 5, let me read Nehemiah chapter 5. If you uh, haven't been with us over the past couple weeks, Nehemiah is leading the effort to rebuild the wall surrounding Jerusalem as the people of God regather and rebuild together, and there has been opposition, and today we read about conflict within God's people. So let's read uh, God's word together. Nehemiah 5.1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our, child, of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help them. For other men have fields and our vineyards, have our fields and our vineyards. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, to, and said, so may God shake out from every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also pers uh, persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all the servants were gathered there for the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray now as we uh, sit in this place and just observe the beauty of your creation. Would you turn our hearts to you? Would you gather our, uh, our attention, our minds, our wills, our hearts, that we might bring all that we have to you, and that you might cleanse us and use us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not too long ago, Slate Magazine, Slate.com, published a series of essays in which they proclaim that we are living through a year of outrage. Every day for an entire year, they cataloged a different reason to be outraged. 365 different reasons to be outraged. There were articles on sexual identity outrage, liberal outrage, conservative outrage, holiday outrage, religious outrage, racial outrage, and on and on and on. A year before we all became sort of armchair epidemiologists, a New York Times article declared that we were living through a pandemic of outrage porn, which they described as having two characteristics. We are living through a time in which everybody is one right about everything, and secondly, everybody is wronged in their rightness. (laughs) We have the right opinions, but we feel aggrieved by others. A Christian journalist writing for The Atlantic published an article titled Taming Christian Outrage in which she wrote, um, she was writing this article highlighting how some Christians have become part of the outrage madness in the blogosphere, the media, and in their personal lives. And she said that Christians are no longer interested in winning hearts, but rather are interested in asserting their own rights, privileges, and comforts in our place and in our time. And everything that I just quoted happened in 2019 before (laughs) the pandemic, before George Floyd was murdered, before masks and vaccines and a turbulent election. We know all of this. We are living through an incredibly turbulent and polarizing cultural moment. And one of the biggest questions that we face as a culture is this, how can we get along with people that we deeply disagree with? How do we get along with people with whom we deeply disagree? And it's a question I think that doesn't just ask about what's happening like out there, out there in the world, out there in our you know, neighbor's homes and in other places of business. It's a, it's a question that We need to ask about what's happening in here, in our own families, in our own church. We've been looking at the book of Nehemiah as we are regathering as a church because it provides a roadmap for us. The people of God have been living in exile for 140 years, and God calls Nehemiah 
to travel 800 or 1,000 miles from uh, the court of Artaxerxes back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around that city that has been laying in ruins so that God's people can regather in safety and have a home. And so this book has been incredibly practical for us as we're meeting outside and as we are gathering for worship after a season where we couldn't and where we're getting ready to move into a new home and a new space next week. And this is great news, but I think if we're honest, it's also really hard. It's hard because we have lived through, I think most of us would say the last year and a half has probably been the worst year and a half of our lives. It's hard because many of us are tired Many of us have lost, we've lost in the last year and a half. We've lost health, we've lost friends, we've lost community, we've lost opportunities. Many of us are tired. Many many of us are struggling with how do I balance the concerns that factor into regathering as God's people during this time? How do I balance concerns for safety and for my children? How do we do this when it's hard? How do we do this when there's polarization and division, not just out there, but in here, in the church, too? And what I hope that we will see this morning is that we share unity. We share unity not only in our message, not only in our mission, but we should share unity by bearing each other's burdens together. That real unity looks like not just caring about the same things or talking about the same things, But real unity looks like having compassion for one another. And real unity looks like that compassion turned into action when we show up and we see each other in the midst of life and we say, let me help you. Let me come alongside you. Let me shoulder the burden of what you're carrying with you. This week as I was um, uh, studying this passage and just thinking about unity and bearing people's burdens together, I was reminded of something that happened a couple years ago. Uh, You may remember, um, I think this was spring of 2019, it was a horrible event in New Zealand when a gunman opened fire in two different mosques, killing 51 people. And the next morning, on the other side of the planet, a British man woke up and he read the news and it was Friday morning and this man, this British man, a Christian, imagined, um, he said, I wonder what it would be like for the Muslims in my city to gather for Friday prayers today, knowing what has just happened. And so this man all by himself found the mosque in his city And he went and sat out front of uh, that mosque, and he held a sign that said, you are my friends. I will keep watch while you pray. (laughs) That's beautiful, isn't it? That's bearing one another's burdens together. And that's what our world needs now, isn't it? Not more analysis Not more explaining why the other side is wrong. Not more performative outrage, but compassion in action, bearing one another's burdens. That's what we need. So how do we get there? 
how do we get that sort of behavior to come out of us? I remember when I read that two years ago about what that man did, I thought, that's a great idea. I wish I had done that. (laughs) How do we get that sort of behavior to come out of us when we're already tired and divided and things are hard? Well, look with me at Nehemiah chapter 5. And the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is the problem that we face. And the problem that we face is internal conflict. Uh, we saw last week that there's always going to be opposition. Is it, it, whenever we, we partner with God in his mission in the world, there will always be those who oppose that action. And we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter it. But Nehemiah follows up here in chapter 5 by saying, not only will there be opposition from outside, there will be conflict within There will be internal division. Verse 1, now there arose a great cry of the people and of their wives. I don't know why they needed to specify that wives are people too, but it's good to know that. There arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Okay, The people, the Jewish people, the people of God are complaining about the actions of their Jewish brothers. And it goes on to enumerate their complaints and Basically, what's happening is this. The city is being rebuilt, and rebuilding a city that has lain in ruins for 140 years is changing the economics of that city. And as that's happening, there are some people who are really struggling. There's some people who are really struggling to get enough food. And there are other people, um, there's apparently a famine in the area, and so people are having to mortgage their properties to pay their rent. Um, to pay their bills, and there are some people who can't afford to pay their taxes, and it's gotten so bad that parents are actually selling their children into indentured servitude. It's bad, right? And on the surface of it, that situation might seem very far removed from our situation in life. Um, No matter how bad things may have been for us at any point in our lives, I don't personally, I'm not personally aware of anybody who has ever sold their children into slavery to pay their debts. But um, when you boil it down, here's what I think is really happening in this passage. When you boil it all down, when you take away the specifics of of their situation, this is what's happening. There are those within the church, within the people of God who are exploiting the chaos caused by the current situation to advance their own interests. There are people exploiting the chaos presented by what's going on in this cultural moment for personal gain. And that, I think, hits a lot closer to home, doesn't it? We are living in this time of outrage where everybody feels that they are both right and have been wronged. And so no matter what the issue at hand is, we feel the need to state our own views um, and we feel that we have the need to have others validate our views. And if that doesn't happen then we divide. We say, well, I don't know if I can trust this person. I don't know if I can be close to this person. We no longer bear with that person. I remember uh, when I was in grad school, a, um, I had a professor who m- made an interesting statement that always st- stuck with me about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and his mission to take the gospel of Jesus from city to city, throughout the Roman Empire, from culture to culture. And Paul, as you read in the New Testament, would um, go into different places with different people, with different customs, different beliefs. 
And my professor said this. He said, Paul was like a brick wall when it came to the truth of the gospel. But he, he bent like a reed of grass when it came to anything else. When it comes to the truth of who Jesus is, he was absolutely adamant. You know, he opposed other apostles when the truth of the gospel was at stake. And he was gracious and he bent like a reed when anything else was uh, at stake. And it feels in many ways, I think, like the church in the 21st century in the West has like flipped those two things. The need to be firm on the truth of the gospel and the need to bend when it comes to our cultural preferences. We have flipped those upside down. Amir Orthodoxy is a, a website, great website um, a couple months ago, they published an article uh, entitled The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. If um, any of you listen to the podcast that Brad and I host together, uh, we talked about this article a couple weeks ago. Fantastic article um, by a pastor in Florida. And what, what he's saying is that in this time that we're living through, Christians in the U.S. have most, for the most part fallen into five camps, and he labels them one through five. And he kind of describes the characteristics of those different camps. But the, the, the thing that just kind of I thought was so insightful about what he said in this article is that, and, and, and these roughly fall out, I mean, on the surface, I think you, you would think like ones are the more conservative and fives are the more progressive. But really, the, the divide comes down not so much over like, well, politics, as much as it comes down to how do we take the cultural realities that we are dealing with and understand them in light of Scripture or vice versa. And the thing that he said is, that, that has stuck with me is this. Christians no longer go to church with people who disagree with them. Christians no longer go to church with people who disagree with them. Ones and twos maybe go to church together, but ones and threes don't go to church together anymore. And fours don't go to church with twos. And it's incredible to think about how much of that has changed. I've been a pastor for 15 years. The first church I was a pastor at, there was definitely people who were ones and fours in that congregation. And so in the last 15 years, there's been this fracturing and polarization within the church where we no longer are able to bear with one another unless we agree with one another on everything. And the plea in Nehemiah, and we see this here in um, verse 5, is essentially saying, aren't we family? I mean, aren't we family? How can we sell our children to our brothers? This is crazy. How can we treat other members of the family of God like we were enemies? So that's the problem, division within the people of God, division within the church. And I think we have to like think about that because for some of us, it's just so commonplace. We're like, yeah, this is always going to be the way it is. And I wonder if it really bothers us. It's been the norm for so long. In verse 6, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I don't know how that strikes you, but this is the first time Nehemiah has said he's angry about anything. You know, not, not, the, not the people who are, like, undermining his plans, not the opposition from the outside, not the guys who are saying they're going to write to the king and tell him he's going to lead a sedition. He, that doesn't make none of that. What makes Nehemiah angry is that there's division within the people of God. How tragic 
Will it ever change? How will it ever change? Well, the second thing that we see in this passage is the perspective that we need. There is so much great advice in this book. Um, I don't know if you're the sort of person, I love reading books on leadership, you know, um, good to great or leadership on the line or, or any of these. If you like reading leadership books, the book of Nehemiah is just a great leadership book. Nehemiah um, is incredible. The way that he handles this conflict is amazing. He says, I was angry, so I took counsel with myself. I mean, that's a great lesson right there. I was angry, so I hit the pause button. I was angry, so I did not immediately go out and berate people. Um, <laughs> he was angry, so what does he do? He gathers the leaders together, the nobles, the officials, and he talks to them. And look at what he says in verse 9. He says, the things that you're doing are not good. It's very clear. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now, why? Okay, he said, what you're doing is bad. Shouldn't you be afraid? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God, respect God, allow the reality of who God is to shape the way that you live in the world? But why? He says, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Here is the issue. The failure to reflect the Lord's compassion in the world undermines the credibility of your current mission. That's what he's saying to the people. The fact that you guys can't get along, that we can't get along, undermines the effectiveness of our mission in the world. And that, I think, is the perspective that we need to understand. Nobody believes what we're saying because we can't get along with one another. When we're bickering and when we're devouring each other, nobody cares what we have to say. Russell Moore is... Um, uh, until very recently, Russell Moore was, I would say, one of the leading voices in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Russell Moore looks like he popped out of the womb ready to go to the Republican National Convention. Um, <laughs> he's going to be on our podcast in a month or so. I hope he didn't, doesn't listen to that. <laughs> but I'll stand by it. He wrote an article um, last April. Last April, the Gallup Research Organization released a poll that said, for the first time in history, as long as Gallup has been doing these surveys, less than 50% of Americans attend a church. And um, Russell Moore wrote a response to that, and what he said was, 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 I don't know, has just stuck in my head for the last several months. He said that the, the, the numbers are um, startling. 50 or 100 years ago, or even 20 years ago, um, people walked away from Christianity because they didn't believe in the truth claims of the Bible or because they didn't want to live by the Bible's moral code. They looked at the Bible and said, we don't agree or we can't do that. In the last 20 years, the rate of people leaving the church has just exploded. And the statistics get worse the younger the person is. So baby boomers, you know, still half or half of baby boomers go to church, but when it comes to millennials or Gen Z, um, the numbers are way, way, way lower. And so here's what Russell Moore said. Um, he said, we now see young people walking away from the church, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. 
Do you understand that? I mean, when I was in high school in the late 90s, you know, the idea that, you know, you were a Christian, and because you're a Christian, you believe certain things that the Bible teaches about the way that you inter- interact in the world. Most people would say, well, maybe you're cheesy, <laughs> but you're more moral. I mean, everybody sort of assumed that, right? And now, now what the research is saying is that young people are not going to church because they think the church is immoral. They do not believe, they, they're not, not coming to church because they don't believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. It's not so much that people disagree with the Bible, it's more that in the understanding and imaginations of many Americans, and increasingly so the younger you get, the church seems to be more a vehicle for politics and cultural grievances. And so the problem is not that people find the Bible's teaching too demanding. The problem is that people don't think that we take the Bible seriously enough. Russell Moore says, A religion that calls people away from Western individualism will have to say with credibility, Take up your cross and follow me, not come with us and we will own the libs. One can do the latter on YouTube and you don't even have to give up your Sunday morning. It is incredible, I think, to think that what Russell Moore is describing as the Achilles heel of the church in 2021 was actually described by Nehemiah 2,400 years ago. Our behavior is undermining our mission. And the incredible thing here is that when Nehemiah comes to the leaders of the people of God, and he gives them this perspective, your, your behavior is undermining your mission, they repent. <laughs> that is such good news. I gotta be honest, this is, this is like my favorite thing about Christianity, that repentance is always an option. You, you never get to the point where you say, I'm so far down this road that I just cannot say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. There's always time to repent. When Nehemiah confronts these leaders who have privileged their own comfort above those that they lead, and when he says to them, your behavior is undermining our mission, they repent and they repay and they take responsibility. And so here's another leadership lesson from the book of Nehemiah. Christian leadership is not about how much can you get done and what can you make happen, but the primary characteristic of Christian leadership is humility. It's humility. Christian leaders are the first to acknowledge that they might be wrong, and so Christian leaders are the first to repent. Isn't that beautiful? And so the question then, the next question I think is, what can motivate that kind of leadership? It's utterly unheard of, even today. You know, everybody knows that leadership has its perks. Why would you want to be a leader if you have to be the one repenting and apologizing all of the time? What could motivate this sort of behavior? Well, the final thing in this passage, the motivation that we have, what could motivate the humility and repentance that we so desperately need? It is the sacrifice of the one that we follow. The sacrifice of the one that we follow is the motivation for this sort of behavior. The final paragraph of this chapter, Nehemiah, he writes autobiographically. He does one of these things that like, I never would want to do this kind of blowing my own trumpet about these are the great things I've done, but it's, 
necessary at this point. And Nehemiah says that he served a 12-year term as governor, as the governor of Judah. And you know what it's like when you're in charge, and he's got a staff, and he's got you know, visiting dignitaries that come from other countries to visit. And um, he's got all these people that he's responsible for. He's got a staff and household and all these guests. And he's constantly meeting with people, and he's got to feed all of these people and so there's a food allowance that the governor is owed, right? It makes sense. He's not doing this out of charity. This is his job. But he says, I didn't take it. I didn't take it. The tax that I could rightfully collect from the people so that I could feed all of these people that I have to feed all of the time, he didn't take it. He pays it out of his own pocket. Nehemiah Nehemiah is my hero. <laughs> he says, I fed 150 people every day. He says, I didn't, quire, I didn't acquire land. I wasn't doing this for my own benefit. But I had all of these people that I had to feed, 150 people every day. So how did he do it? What's the best way to feed a large group of people? Little Caesars, right? Terrible, cheap pizza. No, he... <laughs> He says, what was prepared at my expense every day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance, the same as the menu that we're going to have after church next Sunday. He's preparing this feast every day. I don't know why they only get wine every 10 days, but maybe it lasts that long. I don't know. But he said, I did all of this at my own expense, and then he said, because the service was too heavy on this people, this is what leadership looks like. This is what Christian leadership looks like. I mean, think about who Nehemiah was. You remember Nehemiah at the beginning of the book? Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? It means Nehemiah worked for the richest man in the world. Artaxerxes had, like, dominated everything. Nehemiah works for the richest man in the world. And Nehemiah's job as cupbearer means that the richest man in the world with the best wine collection in the world, it's Nehemiah's job to taste his wine before the king does. I mean, he's living in the lap of luxury. And he gives it all up to move to a city that's in ruins, to lead a people, to rebuild a wall while being attacked and undermined, while having to deal with internal conflicts, Opposition from outside, subterfuge, and everything's hard. And he finances the whole thing out of his own pocket. It's inspiring, right? It's inspiring. And, and I think reading that, like I said, there's a lot of great leadership lessons in the book of Nehemiah. And you might read about a guy making those sorts of sacrifices and it might just be enough to cause us to pause the next time uh, somebody expresses an opinion that we disagree with. It might just halt us in our tracks before rushing to judgment, maybe. When we read about Nehemiah's example of sacrifice, it might affect us. But the thing that is utterly unique about Christianity is that it doesn't say, well, here's a great example, now go and do the same thing. See, the example, watching the example, reading the example of Nehemiah's sacrifice placed before us might be inspiring, but ultimately it is an experience of sacrifice carried out on our behalf that truly changes us. Nehemiah is great, but there's a sense in which he is only like a shadow 
of the real thing, of the one who sacrificed, truly changes us. 400 years after Nehemiah rebuilds the city of Jerusalem, Jesus leaves the lap of luxury, where for all eternity he has been seated, seated at the right hand of God the Father. He leaves the glories of heaven and he enters into our world that lays in ruins. And when he began his ministry, Jesus went into a synagogue and he read from the book of Isaiah these words. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, these words are now fulfilled because you see me standing here before you. Jesus came and he comes to you to gather us together to restore your humanity, to free you from sin and shame, to reunite uh, you and humanity to one another and because you have uh, to re reunite us together because we have been reunited to God himself. And so having lived a perfect life on your behalf, Jesus goes and makes the ultimate sacrifice, paying the expense, the infinite expense in his own life on the cross. Not simply to inspire you, but to change you. A sacrifice performed near you or that you hear about might inspire you for a little bit, but a sacrifice carried out on your behalf that truly sets you free from slavery to sin and death will radically transform you. And if we understand the extent to which Jesus' sacrifice has transformed us or, or, or has set us free, if we really understand what his sacrifice has set us free from, then we can hold our preferences loosely because our Savior has gripped us tightly. That's the only thing that can unite God's people. What could unite us in the midst of tensions over race and sexuality and politics and pandemic, but Jesus who has made us all one by sacrificing for all of us? What could enable us to regather and rebuild and go forward together making disciples other than knowing that whoever you are and whatever you've done this week and no matter what you have posted on social media, that you are welcome and invited to come to the table. What could change a beautiful but spiritually barren place like the one where we live? Will it be finally getting... 150 or 200 people to agree on everything together? Or will it actually be people who deeply disagree with each other on issues of real importance, living with the perspective that the one who unites us is far greater than the things that tear us apart? So will we be united in our mission and we'll be united in our message. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can also be united in bearing each other's burdens together. Amen. Let me, um, let me pray for us for a moment. Let's pray.
Oh God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you uh, care for us and gave yourself up for us. God, we pray that we would be transformed not simply by um, an inspiring example of sacrificial leadership, but that we might actually know Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. That we might gather together around the table as we, um, as we eat and drink his body and his blood. Would you use these simple elements to unite us? You call us your body, the body of Christ, the body of Christ in this place, in this time, as we are united in feasting together, would you use us um, in this place? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.